You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. All right, let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you. Thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for coming and giving yourself selflessly for us so that we can become your bride and your body. Thank you for coming and changing us from people who walked as your enemies and lived as your enemies to then becoming family members by the power of the Spirit. God, I ask tonight as we just commission these new church members into the family of the well, God, that you would just hold them securely. I pray that you would give them strength from the power of your Spirit to persevere in the faith to serve you and to serve others in their church family, and just to love you with their lives. Lord, I pray that you would bless them and grow them, continue to grow them in holiness. I pray, God, that you would um, mend wounds, broken places in each of them, not just in them, but in us, but tonight it's about them. So just pray, God, that you would mend broken places in each of them and continue to grow them. Thank you for giving them to us as family members of the well. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. amen. Let's just bless all over the clap offering. <laughs> Luke chapter 17, verses 1 through 6 is where we're going to be tonight. So we get to dive into a new chapter. This officially marks a little over two years of being in the gospel of Luke. What an exciting time this has been. It was June of 2014 when we started. And, uh, and here we are. We have, we have probably roughly six months of teaching left to go in the Gospel of Luke. So if you're feeling like this is getting a little bit long-winded on, in terms of making it through this series, just buckle up, buttercup, because we've got a ways to go. Um, what, what, a, what a great book to go through. Um, and as we dive into chapter 17 this week, I just, my hope and my prayer is that God would just really be in and, and among us in in, in, like here and just like tangibly present and that he would just help us um, to hear from him and to focus on him. Let's begin reading in verse 1, chapter 17. And he said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come, but woe to the one through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were, to, he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. And the Lord said, If you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. After reading through this passage, I think the big question all throughout this passage is this single question. Do you have true faith? Do you have authentic faith? Do you have real faith? Is the faith that you claim to have, is it true and real and active and authentic? Is it faith that sets a good example? 
Is it faith that carefully watches over your own soul? Is it, is it faith that is willing to gently and lovingly rebuke others around you for sin? Is it faith that forgives? Do you have true faith? Do you have faith that sets a good example? Verses 1 through 3, Jesus tells us to set a good example. Think about this for a minute. What kind of example are you? Ask yourself that question. What kind of an example am I? Are you someone who models Christ for others? Or are you someone who opens the door for temptation and sin? Do you lead other people down the hallways of destructive and deadly living? Are you a good example? It's too easy to answer these questions real quickly and just move past them. It's too easy to miss what Jesus is saying here in regards to what it means for us to set a good example. Like look at the context for a minute. Just think of the context of where this chapter lands. Over the last few chapters in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been locked in conflict with religious people who should have been setting a good example for others, right? They should have been setting the example for other people around them, but they weren't. Instead of setting a good example for other people, these people around Jesus that he was preaching to actually despised him and complained about his commitment to seek and to save the lost. Over and over and over again, over and over and over again, Jesus explains the heart of the Father for lost people. And as he's doing it, he's confronting the hearts of the people who are listening to him preach. It's what he's doing. He's, he's confronting always. He's wanting to see growth. He's concerned with seeing growth in terms of how we set the example for other people around us. He wants us to have the same heart of love. He wants us to have the same heart of love towards others towards our brothers and sisters in Christ and towards those who are lost and towards our Father in heaven. He wants us to have the same heart of love that the Father has extended to us. The reality is that if we are going to be disciples of Jesus, then we should set a good example. We should set a good example by being aware, by being aware of temptation and sin. Ask yourself, are you aware of the temptation and sin that could be welling up and lurking around deep within your heart? Are you aware of those temptations? Are you aware of your propensity to sin? Or are you hiding it, glossing it over, shutting under the rug, making excuses for it, playing the blame game? Jesus tells his disciples this. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come. Temptation to sin is sure to come. It's bound to happen. You and I are living with our heads in the sand if we believe that we're going to get through this life without being tempted to sin. You and I can be certain that the opportunities to be tempted and to fall into sin are lurking around the corners of the doorways of our hearts at all times. And we need to be aware. We need to be on guard we need to be ready. We need to be on the lookout. We need to set a good example by being aware of our bent towards temptation and sin. We should take a lesson from the story of Cain and Abel. Remember the lesson of Cain and Abel? That story, Genesis chapter 4. 
verses 6 through 7, Cain, Cain was ticked at his brother. First sibling rivalry of all time, right? Cain is upset with his brother Abel because God received Abel's offering and rejected Cain's. And God comes to Cain and, and warns him, and he says this. He says, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin, listen, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's what Genesis 4, 6, and 7 tells us. He's sitting there and he's mad at his brother. And God comes and warns him and says, hey, sin is right there. Temptation is right there. Wake up and pay attention. It's crouching around the corner. It's going to come and get you. You can't ignore it. You can't pretend that it's not there. You can't fake it. You can't gloss it over. You must rule over this. Cain ignores what God says, which is where all of our rebellion begins, is us ignoring God's word. It's us ignoring what God has said to us. It's us ignoring what God has commanded us. It's us ignoring what God has promised us. When we ignore God's word, we will inevitably give in to the sin that is lurking around the corner. Sin is crouching at the door desiring to kill every one of you and I. Ask yourself, is there anger lurking deep within the shadows of your heart? Is there bitterness hiding in the corners of your soul? Is there lust running rampant up and down the hallways of your desires? I've got I to say this. Like, one of the things that bothers me is the amount of Christians today that are okay watching soft porn on TV. Like 50 Shades of Grey. I cannot understand how we could be okay with that. I just have to tackle that. Like it doesn't make sense to me that we are okay making light of things that we know are an absolute abomination to God and, and destructive to us and destructive to our hearts and souls. I think part of the reason is because there is lust running rampant in the American culture today and we're unwilling to tackle it. Is there bitterness hiding in the corners of your soul? Is there envy or jealousy or impatience or laziness or pride or fear, unforgiveness, hatred buried within the rooms of the fortress of your heart and mind? Jesus says that we should set a good example by being aware of temptation and sin. And listen, it's not only that. We should set a good example by not opening the doorway of temptation and sin. It's not just the fact that we need to be aware of what's going on in our hearts we need to watch out and not even open the door to these things. Convinced that deep within the hallways of our hearts lie temptation and sinful impulses that are always knocking on the doors of our hearts, screaming to be let in so that they can control our every desire. After knocking on the doors of our hearts and just screaming for us, to let them in, when sin comes in, when we give in to temptation, when we give in to sin, then it is as though we give in to death. Don't open the door. If 
Jesus tells his disciples that temptation and sin are sure to come. And when he says that, he says, woe to the one through whom they come. You and I do not want to be responsible for opening the doorway to temptation and sin. And we need to barricade those doorways. We need to lock them up tight. It doesn't matter what it takes for you to cut off that sin and that temptation that is in your life, you've got to cut it off and you've got to barricade it. Because if it doesn't kill you, it's going to kill others around you. Sin leavens the entire loaf. And Jesus says, woe to the one through whom they come. We need to barricade those doorways and resist temptation and sin. You and I cannot sit passively by while we, while we play around in the doorways of temptation and sin in our lives. If you and I open the doors to this, you watch out because the outcome will be painful. Marriages burn. Relationships get destroyed. Lives melt down. The outcome will be dangerous. The outcome will be nearly life-threatening. You need to set a good example by not opening the doorways of temptation and sin. Listen to what James says, Jesus' brother in James chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Wretched and mourn and weep. Let not your laughter be turned. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Words, don't open the doorways of temptation and sin by laughing at what God calls evil. Or just wholeheartedly accepting the things of this world that gets thrown at us. Minimizing what God calls sin or excusing what God calls impure. Don't live a double standard. Don't live a double life. I'm not talking about mistakes that we make and sins that we get caught up in. I'm talking about a wholesale, kicked out, ends out of the grave type of thing where you are just living with your face and your, your mind set towards pursuing that which is opposite from what God desires. That's what we're talking about. Woe to the person through whom these temptations and sin come. Are you guilty of opening those doorways? And do you say yes to anger? Do you give in to bitterness? Are you enslaved to lust? Are you envious or jealous of what others have? Do you find yourself being impatient? Are you prone to laziness? Does your, pride, does your pride manifest itself in being afraid of people and seeking their approval? Does your pride manifest itself in defensive posturing and seeking to crush other people with control and manipulation? Do you live out like hateful fantasies of vengeance and unforgiveness? Like Jesus says that we should set a good example by not opening the doorway to temptation and sin. He also says we, shouldn't, we should set a good example by not running down the hallways of destructive and deadly living. Since one thing leads to the next. If you're not aware of the temptation and sin deep within your heart, 
if you're not aware of your bent towards certain sin, then you will inevitably open the door, no problem. And most likely you've already opened the door and you're just running, kicking and screaming like a little kid up and down the hallways. Part of it begins with being aware of our tendencies and then refusing to open the door and refusing to run down those hallways anymore. If you don't recognize, you're not aware of the dark places of your heart that lead you into temptation and sin, you will inevitably be the one who opens that door. And then the only recourse you will have is to run down those dark and evil corridors, hallways of destructive and deadly living. Jesus says that if you're not aware of your own tendencies towards temptation and sin, then you will run down those sinful hallways. And he says if you do, it would be better for you if a millstone were hung around your neck and you were cast into the sea than that you should cause one of these little ones to sin. Your life is characterized by your indulgence of sinful living rather than repentance. It's better for you to be cut off. That's what Jesus is saying. You talk about some heavy stuff. I didn't pick this, so you know. I keep thinking that the gospel of Luke is going to wind up getting lighter as we move forward. What happens is as Jesus heads to the cross, where he's going to die for you and I for our sins as a perfect ransom and sacrifice, as he heads that way, he gets more intense, right? Why? Because it cost him his life, right? Because it cost him his life. He has the right to say these things. I mean, it would be better for you and I. Be better for you and I if we're going to be the people that lead other younger Christians and other kids into sin. It would be better than a millstone get hung around our neck and tossed into the deepest sea. That's heavy stuff if you read that and you study it. You can either ignore it and move on by it, or you've got you to deal with it. You've got to deal with what Jesus says here. Either A, you don't believe it, or B, you believe it and you wrestle with it, Right? have to wrestle with this. You have to wrestle with this. Think about your Facebook profile. Think about your Facebook profile for a minute and what gets posted on there and what that says to the watching world around you. What kind of example does that set? Simple as that. What kind of an example does that set for others? Are you leading someone astray? Are you leading someone into temptation or harm or destructive and deadly living just by a simple click on your Facebook page? Think about the language you use in front of other young believers. Think about the children that are watching you. Think about the woman that you're taking advantage of sexually. Think about the man you're placing your emotional hopes in. Does your life leave people thirsting for more of God? Or does it lead others down the hallways of sinful and destructive living? This is what Jesus is preaching in our midst tonight in this text. I had a friend once who get shot at for this. I had a friend once who served alongside of me in ministry at some point in his life went completely on tilt 
begin to lose his awareness of his own tendencies towards temptation and sin. Begin to open the doorways to all kinds of evil living. And he began to run up and down those hallways of destructive and deadly living. Sinfulness that was embedded deep within his heart began to control his life. For years, many of us gathered around him. Out of concern and love. He refused to listen. He refused to repent. He refused to change. And then many people followed him as he ran up and down those hallways. Many of those people are no longer following the Lord today. When you choose to run down the hallways of destructive and deadly living, you're not setting a good example, and you will inevitably cause other little ones, younger baby Christians, to sin as well. Jesus is telling us in this passage to set a good example by not running down the hallways of destructive and deadly living because when we do it, we become like what Jesus' little brother James said again in James chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. He says, each person is tempted when he is lured Lured, many of you went fishing, lured, just like a fishing lure, lured and enticed by his own desire, by his own sin. And desire, when it conceives, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You give in to those sinful desires deep within you. Marry that to sin some more. And the outcome of that is death. Talk to people about the chaos of sin in their families and their lives all the time. Oftentimes I say, I'm not sure if I see Jesus at work in you right now. And sometimes people are like really pissed at me when I say that. And I say that out of love. I say that in gentleness. I say that with tears when I say it because what I want, nothing more, is to see Jesus in someone's life. And when I don't see Jesus, what's the opposite? The opposite is sinful desires welling up with more sin and the chaos of death that ensues and comes out of that. It breaks my heart because I know that if, if we would just lean in and give in and surrender and throw up the white flag and say, Jesus, I can't do this on my own and I need you. You're the, you're the only one that can sustain me. I want you to be the delight of my life. I want no other God but you. If we would say that, the chaos and the deadliness and the destruction of sin would dissipate. It would dissipate. And we would live, truly live. Instead of seeing the chaos of sin welling up out of people's lives into families and homes and churches and relationships that produces death, we would see the fruit of life, the fruit of the gospel, the fruit of Christ, not the chaos and the deadliness of sin. Do you have faith that watches, rebukes, and forgives? Think about that as we move through this text. Do you have faith that watches, rebukes, and forgives? In verses 3 through 4, Jesus calls us to watch over our own hearts diligently, rebuke our brothers and sisters who fall into sin gently and lovingly, and forgive endlessly. Forgive endlessly. Jesus says, Pay attention to yourselves. Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother or your sister sins, rebuke him. 
And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. In other words, Jesus is saying, wake up from your slumber. Pay attention. Open your ears. Open your eyes. Watch the condition of your own heart carefully. Watch over it. Don't fall asleep. And if you have a brother or a sister that is unaware of their sin, get after them. Don't sit back passively and go, oh, sorry, sucks to be you. No, get after them because they're your brother or your sister. You're supposed to love them by confronting them and getting after them. Gently, lovingly. If you know somebody, they just open the doorways to the sinful desires of their heart. And if they're running like a child through the dark hallways of sinful living, you must practice the art of rebuking and forgiving. And Matthew 18, 7 through 9, Matthew 18 is the parallel passage to this. It's the parallel chapter. Matthew 18, 7 through 9, Jesus says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary, different word, necessary that temptations come. It's necessary. I'd love to preach that word for a while. It's necessary that you and I get tempted. Why? Jesus was tempted. Hebrews says Jesus was tempted just like us. But the difference was he walked out those temptations perfectly. That's why we get to trust in him. Because the promise is, is that you and, as you and I continue to fail, as we trust in him who walked it out perfectly, the promise is that he will save us and change us. The fruit of a gospel-centered life is one that grows in holiness. It's one that grows in Christ-likeness. It's necessary the temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. If your hand, catch this, listen, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. You, you, you ask why, why am I so passionate about this when I speak with people? Why would I be so passionate about this when preaching? We all should be this passionate. Why? Why? Because every one of us should agree and be united on this one single fact. The best thing that you and I could ever have is to be in the presence of Christ for all eternity, right? Agreed? That's the best place for all of us is to be in his presence for all of eternity. I'd rather be there, rather be there, minus a hand, minus, minus an eye, minus both eyes if that's what it takes for me to get there in his presence. That's what this passage is saying. Jesus is saying, hey, if your hand offends you, chop it off. What he's saying is our war with sin, our battle with sin, our battle with temptation is sin is brutal. It's brutal. It's not something for kids' books. It's not child's play. It's not something we just ignore and sweep under the rug. We go after it. That's what he's saying. Chop the hand off. Pluck the eye out. Better for you to enter into eternity crippled or lame with two hands than with two hands or two feet to be thrown in the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to enter life. Better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. People like to say, Jesus didn't talk about hell. Yes, he did. Right here. Yes, he did. We must pay attention to ourselves. 
We must watch over our hearts and souls like hawks. We must ruthlessly run down our sinful desires and our sinful thinking patterns and our sinful behaviors and murder them ruthlessly, relentlessly murder them. This is a blood war because Jesus gave his blood so that you and I don't have to give our blood. It's a blood thing. Jesus' blood washes you white as snow, as high as the heavens are above the earth, and as far as the east is from the west. That's how far our sins are cast away from us because of Jesus' blood. Murder sin. Murder sin within yourself or it will be murdering you and everyone that follows you. Look at Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Just a little bit further down in Matthew, same parallel text. He says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Catch this word. If he listens to you, if he listens to you, if he has ears, if he hears you. See, when, 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 I, when, I, when I'm in relationship with somebody, I say, hey, I don't think that should, we should be going that way. I think this is what God's word says for us to do. When someone stops listening and they stick their fingers in their ears and they continue down that path, that's when I know. Like something really miraculous has to happen at this point for us to see true and lasting repentance and change in someone's life. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Most oftentimes, when you get to that point where you got to confront somebody for their sin, you got to take somebody else with you, it's not like you're the only two that know. Just saying. Facebook knows. Agreed? Yeah. So... So there should be no problems for us to take somebody with us and be like, hey, brother, hey, sister, I love you. I want to gently confront you and ask you to walk the right direction. Why? Because it's already public, right? <laughs> We've already made our sin public. It's not much that's hidden in the dark anymore. Scriptures tell us what we try to hide in the dark is going to get brought out anyways. I was bothers me and drives me crazy and people are like you can't talk to me about my sin really okay all right well you just plaster all over the place so you should just quit telling me about it right i know i'm being a smart aleck if he does not listen take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses if he refuses to listen to them tell it to the church that's heavy tell it to the church if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. That means cut off, in need of being evangelized. Further down in verses 22, 21 through 35 in that same passage, Jesus describes what it looks like to forgive people who sinned against us and ask for mercy. And the point of these passages, when read in context together, is neither the wholesale acceptance of harsh and legalistic punishment or, on the other hand, a passive glossing over of sin or sweeping things under the rug or ignoring it or excusing sinful living. These passages teach us that we must be ready to rebuke and forgive. We must be ready to confront, correct, call out our brothers and sisters when they are standing on the train tracks with freight trains barreling down upon them. And we must be ready to forgive them when they repent. 
Look back at Luke 17. Go back to Luke 17 if you were trying to track with me through the scriptures on that big tirade. And back in Luke 17 in verse 3, we run to this little bit of this, like a, a linguistics issue as you look at verse 3. Jesus says, if he repents, forgive him. Let me say it again in case it's not sinking in yet. If he repents, forgive him. That's tricky. Everybody say amen to that. Tricky. That's tricky. Like how do you get past this? Is this like conditional forgiveness? Like if dude doesn't repent, I ain't forgiving you. I'm just going to get bitter. Heavens no. That can't be right, right? That can't make sense. To take that to be the meaning of what Jesus says here would be to interpret this phrase heretically, wrongly. So we know that we're called to forgive unconditionally, perfectly and infinitely. If we understand Jesus' other reference in this passage to be forgiving seven times, right? So what's the meaning of this praise? phrase? If he repents, forgive him. In my searching, I came across one statement that I hope will make it clear for you guys as much as it did for me. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite dead author commentators. J.C. Ryle says in regards to this passage, says this expression, if he repents, forgive him is remarkable. It doubtless cannot mean that we are not to forgive men unless they repent. At this rate, there'd be much bitterness constantly kept alive. But it does mean, catch this, it does mean that when there is no repentance or regret for an injury done, there can be no renewal or cordial relationship or complete reconciliation between men. In other words, forgiveness is a command that we must seek to follow, but restoration and reconciliation of relationships broken by the chaos of sin is conditional upon the effort and the evidence of repentance in people's lives. We should be people who watch our hearts like armed guards, watching out for bitterness, watching out for unforgiveness. We should boldly and gently and lovingly rebuke our brothers and sisters when they begin to live in the chaos of sin. And we should be ready to forgive endlessly. Where's your heart in all this? Are you paying attention to the condition of your heart? Are you paying attention to the condition of your soul? Are you ruthlessly running down your sinful desires, your sinful thinking patterns, sinful behaviors, so that you can ruthlessly murder them? Are you watching the backs of your brothers and your sisters in Christ? Are you practically practicing biblical discipline and correction? Do you have unforgiveness running rampant deep within the hallways of your heart? full of bitterness and resentment? Are you watching? Are you rebuking? Are you forgiving? My prayer is that God would continue to bring us to repentance in these areas. It's my hope is that God would continue to change us. My hope is that we would repent from our self-reliant and self-worshipping ways of living and turn in faith in these moments. Turn in faith to the only one who can authentically and faithfully watch over our souls. Hope is that we would all turn in these moments to the only one who can rebuke our sin perfectly. The person is Christ. 
Christ alone is the faithful shepherd of our souls. Christ alone is the only one who watches our heart and souls by the the diligent power of of the power of the Holy Spirit. Christ alone is the only one who gently and boldly confronts and corrects and rebukes our sin. Not only through the power of the Spirit, but through the power of the preaching of his word and the the power of, of the spoken words on the lips of other brothers and sisters in the community of the gospel. In Christ alone we find true forgiveness for our sins because of his perfect sacrifice at the cross. This is good news. This is the gospel that you and I don't have to like gut this thing out on our own anymore. This is the gospel that we got to believe today. This is the gospel that we got to rest in today. It's the one that we find our refuge in today. We must let the gospel forge our ability to watch diligently, rebuke others in their sin, and forgive relentlessly. Amen. You have true faith. Do you have true faith? Verses 5 through 6, Jesus tells us to have true faith. Listen, when Jesus calls us to set an example and to watch, rebuke, and forgive, there comes a point for every one of us where we got to ask, like, how in the heck do I do all of this? How in the heck do I do this? We might even begin to think, dang, I'm not going to need a lot more faith to make this happen, right? But the reality is it's not about having more faith. It's about having true faith. It's not about having more faith. It's about having true faith. The disciples had to have been feeling the same weightiness of what Jesus was throwing down here because their response, though admirable and understandable, when they exclaimed, increase our faith, Imagine being the disciples in those moments when Jesus is laying all this down. And suddenly you're overwhelmed with the entire weight of it. God, give me more faith would be the response. And that was what their response was. But Jesus responds to their outburst not by saying, oh, more faith is what you want. Good job. Pat on the back. I'll give you more faith. No, he doesn't say that. He says, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Just let me ask this question. How many of you ever uprooted a mulberry tree by the power of your words? Nobody? Dang. You need more faith. That's what the health, wealth, and prosperity teachers would teach you. You need more faith, right? That's what they would tell you. They don't read their Bibles. That's the problem. Jesus doesn't say you need more faith. He's saying if you had true faith, true faith, just the size of a mustard seed, you could walk over to a mulberry tree and say, be uprooted and get yourself planted in that sea over there. Mulberry trees live for hundreds of years. And their roots go on forever. Catch that picture. Their roots go on forever. Jesus is talking about sin in this passage, Right? Think about the roots of sin in your life and how long they've been there and how far back they go. And the roots of sin in our lives go back forever. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, if you're, if you're going to be a church, if you're going to be people that are going to wrestle with sin in our midst so it doesn't leaven the whole world, so it doesn't flatten us, so it doesn't, it doesn't take us out, so it doesn't destroy us, so it doesn't knock the building over, so that we're actually living like holy priests who are, are living out our faith in front of other people. If that's who we're going to be, we don't need more faith. We need 
Good faith, true faith, authentic faith, real faith that looks at those roots of sin in each of us and says, be gone, right? That's what we need. True faith that says, be gone. Get yourself planted underneath the depths of the sea. I'm drowning you in the sea. That's, what's the, that's what this word is. I'm picking you up and you're out by a word. It's amazing. <coughs> that's how the impossible becomes possible. With true faith in Christ, the impossible becomes possible. <coughs> it's impossible to put broken marriages back together. All of us know that. It's impossible. It's impossible to raise kids who follow Christ. Impossible. This is an impossibility. It's impossible to, to start churches out of the middle of nothing. It's impossible to see other people come to Jesus and start following him and actually live it out. It's impossible. It's impossible to overcome that sin that you've been wrestling with all your life. I know. I got some. I got some roots. If God would just perfect my authentic faith, then I'd be, be gone into the sea, right? This is an impossibility. With Christ, all things are possible, right? With Christ, all things are possible. The only reason that you and I continue to struggle where we struggle is because we diminish God's power. We think that that impossible thing that we're facing can never be overcome. That's what we really believe. If we really believed that Jesus was the king and the Lord and the master and the satisfier of our lives, if our desires were for him and him alone, we would never desire any other thing that we call God. We would never elevate anything else above God. Philip Ryken commenting on this passage as I bring this to a close, said this, it's hard to set a good example for other people. It's hard not to lead them astray. It's hard to rebuke a brother's sin in a way that leads to actual repentance. It's hard to forgive people who have done us some kind of wrong. All these things are hard to do, if not completely impossible. Like it's hopeless to believe that any of us can do any of this. Hopeless. If all you hear in this message is go do X, Y, Z and stop doing X, Y, Z, you're going to walk out of here in a hopeless place. You will walk out of here in a hopeless place. What I want you to hear is that Christ did it and only in him will you find the power to do it. Only in him. It's the only place. Jesus is the only answer for the hopelessness that you and I face day in and day out. We look to Jesus. We trust in the perfect work of Jesus. We trust in the never-ending love of Jesus. We believe in the perfect performance of Jesus. When we fail to set a good example, we confess our sin and then proclaim the perfect performance of Jesus. When we get lazy and forget to watch our souls, it's an opportunity to confess our sin and proclaim the perfect shepherding skills of Jesus who watches over our souls like an armed militia. 
when we chicken out of rebuking our brothers and sisters, when we're being rebuked by our brothers and sisters in Christ, we can confess our sin and proclaim once again the perfect performance of Jesus as he died upon the cross, paying the penalty for our sin so that we can receive complete and eternal forgiveness, unconditional love. Listen, when we are faced with the impossibility of extending forgiveness to other people who sinned against us, in horrific ways and we can confess our failures and our inabilities and the impossibility of extending forgiveness to those folks. And in those moments, we can look at the cross of Christ again where as he was being nailed to that cross by his enemies who treated him horribly, he looked up into the heavens and he cried out this one sentence that should radically alter our existence. Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. Find it hard to forgive tonight? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the forgiveness that Christ extends to every one of us. It's the forgiveness that he calls us to extend to others as we trust in his ability to do the impossible. This is where we find our hope. Christ is where we find our hope. Our ability to perform any of this will leave us hopeless, empty, dying in the chaos of sin. Christ's ability to perform all of this perfectly will embolden your faith and breathe life into your life. (coughs) This is what it means to have true faith and not more faith. God calls us to set a good example. Calls us to watch over our hearts diligently, calls us to rebuke our friends and extend forgiveness. And the way that we do this is by having true faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The question that we're left with today is do I have true faith? Faith that sets the example. Faith that carefully watches my soul. Faith that gently and lovingly rebukes others in their sin. Faith that forgives Do I have true faith? Let's pray as our music team comes forward. Father, I know that as we approached this passage of Scripture tonight, I know I'm just just painfully aware of my own shortcomings and my own failures and my own struggle against sin. my own fear when it comes to rebuking others in their sin and my own um, just lack of self-awareness at times when I get lazy or tired or worn out or overworked or angry. <coughs> Lord, I, I, I just confess and I just know um, the roots of sin in my life, 38 years of living on this earth, 16 of those following you. I just felt, God, like I was just struck in the face with this passage of Scripture. Lord, I know that sometimes that's just basically just what I need is to be struck in the face once again, to be woken up and to be reminded of my deep need for you. 
I, I, know that, I know that that's true for us, not just me. And so God, I, I lift us up. Lord, I just stand before you on behalf of my church family here. I pray, Lord God, that you would use this word and this, this message um, to spur on work of holiness, transformation, and sanctification. And I also pray, God, that you would use this message to bring some people, many people, to true, lasting, persevering faith and trust in you, in your commands and and in your promises. Lord, you have promised us a place in the family to trust in you. You've promised us that you would change us. So I pray that you do that. We just trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. I invite you to stand with us. There'll be a few people near the front to serve communion with you and some near the front to pray with you. I know there are many of you here that have needs. So you should not hesitate to come forward and get prayer for those needs. As you come to take communion, I want to encourage you, only come to engage in communion if you are a believer in Christ, if you have trusted in Christ, if you are saying, Christ is my satisfaction. If in these moments you've been running down the hallways of sinful, destructive, and deadly behavior, and in these moments you've been brought to faith in Christ, and you come trusting and knowing that he will save you, he will keep you, and he will change you. If you're not a believer and you're here, don't take communion. We don't want you to do something that's just a mindless activity for you. As you come, the bread signifies the body of Christ which was broken and the juice signifies the blood of Christ which was poured out for you so that you and I don't have to pay the penalty because the price has been paid so that you and I could have true faith. Love you guys. Thanks for letting me preach. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.